Welcome back to Bible time. First Thessalonians 2 and verse 6, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Quite a loaded verse here, a lot to look at. Um, let's dive into this, um, into this text this morning. Let's pray first. Father, in Jesus' name, bless us and bless this word. I pray, Lord, it would be a blessing. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd give us understanding. Again, Father, please fill us with your Holy Spirit. Strip us of self. Strip, of, strip us of our, our self-motives, Father. Bring us to a point of surrender, Lord, to your will, to your purpose, to your word, Father. Help us to lay aside even our preconceived notions and ideas and help us just to preach the word faithfully in Jesus' name. And for Christ's sake, amen. Now, this is the essence of what was being taught here, that they spoke the gospel as they were put in trust in verse 4. So he's saying, nor of men sought we glory. If we seek glory of men, then we break trust of the gospel. It's really easy to seek glory of men. When you get around people that you like, people that have helped you, you get around people that have labored for you, and then you, they've earned your respect, and you listen to them, and you enjoy their fellowship and communion with them. Um, people are not really loners. Even loners are not really loners. Most loners are just hurt people who are probably were originally more tender than other people. A lot of times loners are just people who have suffered more injury or have at least felt that they suffered great injury at the hands of other people and they seclude themselves to protect themselves from being hurt. But even in that, it's a pain that causes the separation. And it's um, a continual pain and a reminder of pain. And it's the bitterness of soul of that individual that causes them to be a loner and to be alone and stay on the outskirts of the group and never talk to anybody. Um, nobody is designed to be a loner. God made people um, to need fellowship, to want fellowship, to enjoy fellowship. But it is sin and hurt and pain and the breaking of trust that causes people to be loners. Now, whenever you get around a group of people, you want them to like you. And so pretty soon you start to do things like they do them, unless you're just so conceited that you want them to do everything the way you do it. There's really only two options there. Either you start to do things like other people do them, or you try to make everybody else do the things that you do the way that you do them. But everybody likes company. There's the old saying, misery likes company. Somebody gets down in the dumps. They start feeling discouraged. They think the world's coming to an end. They think that um, something bad's about to happen. They try to find other people with a similar mindset so that they can share their misery together. And they can wallow in the misery of their outlook on life. Often you'll find people that are pessimists flock with people that are pessimists, people that are optimists, and they always think that good things are going to happen no matter what. They like to flock with other people who are optimists. And then you get your realists, you get your cynics, you get your scorners, you get your stoics, you get all these different types of people and they all try to find people like them to hang out with and whenever you have found a group and you're part of that group and you're accepted in that group you understand the way that they think because they think like you think and together you guys you don't 
as a group, have to all say everything because you kind of all think the same thing anyway. And you get together and enjoy that fellowship and that company together. Um, it is a common thing for that to build t- until it becomes powerful, a, power- a powerful enough force in your life that you will not change your viewpoint for fear of offending your group and the people around you. And that fear of offending them is real because you know that if you change your mind and you start to say things that are different from that group and that group's fellowship is based upon common mindsets, then you will be ostracized. Now, what does that mean? Is ostracized a bird that sticks its head in the sand and lays big eggs? What is ostracized? Ostracized is not an ostrich. That's a big bird. Ostracized means that you will be put out, that you'll be overlooked, that you'll be cold-shouldered, that people will ignore you. They won't pay attention to you. They won't want to talk to you. They won't want to be your friend. And so when you're part of a group and the fellowship is built around, um, let's say maybe you were um, part of there's these veterans halls all around America where people who are veterans of foreign wars can go. And as long as you go there and your main fellowship is around the fact that you were veterans of foreign wars, you'll be accepted. But I, um, I'll just tell you straight up, if a born-again Christian goes into one of those places that has been going there for years and he got saved and he wants to tell all his buddies at the VFW hall that he got saved, He's going to find there's a break in fellowship. There will be a breaking down of the fellowship. They won't be able to just sit there and clink their glasses of beer together and enjoy a grin and a smile for old times' sake. You know, a lot of times, especially when men get older, they can just sit there and say nothing if the men in the group have been through the same thing together. There's a camaraderie camaraderie is like a friendship. I want you three young men to go stand over there and put your arms around each other. Hurry up. And when you've been through something, there's some camaraderie. Put your arms around each other. Now I want you to look at each other and frown as hard as you can and try not to enjoy yourselves. Why are you grinning? I told you to frown. Frown harder. How come it's not working? Why are you giggling? Now you're grinning. Now, now all three of you are grinning. Now you're trying to hide a giggle. That's camaraderie. Go sit down. They have something in common. Those three young men have been through chores together. They've been through cleaning together. They've been through work days together. They've been through a lot of stuff together. And whenever they get together, there's a certain togetherness that just makes them grin. And you get some guys together, and they can sit there and just enjoy the reality of what they have lived through together. And they can sit there and never say a word And just sit there and enjoy the moment of togetherness. Because just being together brings fellowship and a reminder of the difficulties and the troubles that they survived together. Now, whenever that one of those men in that group gets saved and he starts to tell those other men about Jesus Christ, there's a break in the fellowship. There's a break in the camaraderie. And this is the most basic element of seeking glory from men. Whenever we have friendships, the reality of it, the raw truth of the matter is that friendship has a degree of glory in it. And there's a degree of glorying in each other's friendship. Whenever you're all alone and nobody likes you and nobody wants to talk to you, it's very lonely, isn't it? 
It's a terrible thing to even think about. But if you have a friend, if you're sitting there all alone and everybody's ignoring you and a friend walks up next to you and just sits down beside you, there's a degree of glory that's been imparted to you. You have been elevated from the status of an outcast to that of a friend. You have been placed on a higher level and people can elevate people in that way. And in some degrees, that can be a very good thing. Now, this goes far beyond just friendship. There can be glory in a denominational setting, whereas a preacher can be elected to serve on a committee at denominational headquarters. And then you can have delegates to denominational headquarters and all kinds of things that go on with that and these honors that are preferred upon men these glory the glory of men can also be a degree at a institution of learning such as a seminary or a college and you can go and study under a professor and all of that hard work studying under that professor brings a degree of camaraderie do you hear me today it brings an association it brings a closeness because you're going through something with him and he is imparting to you the knowledge that he has. He is laboring to impart to you the knowledge that he has labored himself to learn. And there is a degree of respect that goes with it and glory. So when the college student sits down in the college class, he imparts glory to the professor. He allows the professor to stand up in front. He sits down in the back. The professor speaks. The student listens. The professor gets glory of those men. And then one day when, the, when that boy or girl has completed his college education and he receives a degree, they clothe him in a robe and they put a special hat with a golden tassel or the color of the school on their head and then they give them a gilded um, certificate and they applaud them and they clap for them and they put those graduates up on the stand and the professors most of them will sit down and the faculty will be sitting a lot of times in the seats except for a few of the other members like maybe the president of the school and other key members of the faculty will be sitting up there and they will be imparting glory to the graduates. And this, and this, and in no way, listen, in no way do I want to diminish the hard work and the labor that people go to to earn a degree. But I do want to make you think for a little bit about the glory factor of this degree and the glory factor of schools and the glory factor of your relationships. You're getting glory from the faculty. You gave them glory. You gave them your money. You gave them your time. You gave them your attention you gave them your obedience, you studied what they said to study, you submitted to them, you submitted your exams and your paperwork, and then they gave you the glory of writing down that you have passed all their examinations and that you are now considered educated and that you can be trusted with these fields of knowledge that have been taught to you. And so they put you up on the stand in your robe and your hat and they call you up in front of the student body, in front of your family and your friends in front of the faculty members and you're standing there in your robe and they've got um, majestic music playing and they hand you a certificate and of course the certificate is only a symbol and it's what it stands for is what's important to you and they glorify you, they laud you, they give you honor in front of other men and that is a powerful force. Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians, um, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others. Now, glory is a powerful force, and glory comes with, with glory comes strings. 
You see, whenever you are glorified by man and they lift you up and they extol you and they honor you, then you are in a sense duty bound to do them honor in return by remembrance of them, by appreciation of them, by gratitude to them, and by loyalty to the principles that those men taught you. Does that make sense today? I hope I'm not just talking to the air. I hope you're getting this today. When you receive glory of men, it also imparts a degree of um, obligation to you to maintain what you were taught, to walk in the lines that you were taught. Now, if you were taught um, by a professor... And he taught you, um, let's say, how to fertilize a field in an agricultural degree. And he taught you the principles of fertilization. And later you go on and you decide that everything that that professor taught you was wrong. And you write books in the direct contradictory of everything that that professor ever said. And you cite his teachings and do your utmost to prove that what he said was wrong. Then you will no longer receive glory from that professor unless you can win him to your side. But if he does not change his point of view, he will become um, not in a, probably not in a physical sense, but in a scholastic sense, an enemy. And he will begin to strive to defend his views against you. So glory from man comes with it, comes an obligation. When man glorifies man, man gets becomes obligated to man. And this can be a very dangerous thing for the gospel because the gospel is given by Jesus Christ. And we are put in trust of the gospel by Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the great master. They called him rabbi, teacher, great teacher. Master Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, called him rabbi. He says, we know thou art a teacher come from God. And he submitted himself to the teaching of Christ as he should and we should. Jesus Christ is the great master. We are the students. Thereby we glorify Christ by submitting to the word of God. That Bible that you have in your hand, in your lap, is the word of God. And when you submit to the word of God, you are giving glory to God. When you say, God, your word is true, you give glory to God. Now, If you deviate from the word of God and if you begin to contradict the word of God and to contradict it and to say that things within the word of God are not true and to and to countermand those things and contradict the commands of Christ and speak against the commands of Christ, you become religiously an enemy of Christ. And Christ said, he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And he says that you are either for me or against me. Jesus Christ himself said this. And this concept shouldn't be too hard to grasp, but for some reason we have a hard time grasping it. You see, we've gotten this idea that we can say whatever we want to say about God, but if we do him the favor of even mentioning him, he should be happy with us whether we agree with what he said or not, because we're giving him the honor and glory of an honorable mention. In all of our erudition, all of our study, all of our high degrees, and all of our philosophy, we have taken time to look at the words that God wrote, and to analyze them, and to criticize them, and to say what we think that they mean, and therefore God's supposed to be happy with us. Do you hear me today? 
Are you following this today? We think that if we give God just honorable mention, that he should be happy that we took time to edit his Bible, or we took time to write something about him and to give our opinion because we are glorifying God. And that attitude is the attitude of the professor to the student, taking the taking the seat, the higher seat, and giving God the lower seat. And Jesus Christ said, he that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. So whenever we take and begin to express ideas that contradict the word of God, we are in fact attacking God. We are attacking his veracity. We are attacking his character. We are attacking the reality that he is God, and we are lifting ourselves up as God to be judges over God. Yea, hath God said, said the tempter in the garden to Adam and to Eve, particularly to Eve, though Adam was nearby at the least, for he was there when she ate of the fruit. He said, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every fruit of the garden. And he began to criticize the text. He had a textual criticism. It began in the garden of Eden. He thought that he could give his opinion about God. And this has entered into the colleges, it's entered into the seminaries, it's entered into the denominations, it's entered into the different groups, and because so many men have received glory of men, they're no longer able to receive glory of God. Jesus said, ye are they which receive glory of men. How can you receive glory of God if you receive glory of men? And it says that they loved the praises of man rather than the than the um, approval of God. Rough paraphrase, you can look it up. But the people that even when they knew what was true, even when they knew it was right, like Nicodemus, they would not sacrifice their position, their prestige. They would not sacrifice their old alma mater. They would not sacrifice their friendship with the other people in order to stand up for Christ because they knew that if they said something for Christ, they would be ostracized by the people who they had received glory from. And they treasured their own personal glory that they had received more than the glory of God and giving Christ the glory that was due his name. So the apostle Paul here says, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others. So there's two directions that glory can overwhelm the gospel and overtake the gospel, the glory of men. There's two directions. Number one, of you, of your own church. A pastor can take and look at his church as the hirers. He can look at his church as his bosses. He can look at the committees and look at the deacons board and look at those that are voting him into position as those that have placed him there and given him that honor. And this is true in many denominations because many denominations the churches have a great deal of power in choosing their pastor. There are other denominations we'll talk about in a minute of others sought we glory. But in general there's a lot of churches that have the power to select their pastor and they'll gather and they'll get a committee together and they'll um, a pulpit committee or something like that and they'll do their um, diligence they'll study they'll uh, check applications they'll look at people's credentials at people's education and they'll look at their background and what schools they've attended what they say they believe and they'll contact a man and when that man comes they have him preach then they listen to him preach and the whole time they preach that man is conscious that there is a potential of a job on the line that he's got he has spent his life he's spent his time studying for the ministry he's prepared himself and he's 
doing his utmost to be a minister of the gospel, and that's what he wants to do. He believes God's called him to it. But in order to to actually fulfill that ministry in a capacity that is visible, he's going to have to be selected by a church. So as he's preaching and as he's teaching, he's conscious and aware of the fact that he is being judged, that these people are listening and criticizing what he's saying and talking it over after he goes home to try and decide whether or not this man is qualified to be the pastor of that church. Eventually, if that church chooses to select that man and to place him in the position of pastor in that church, then he is raised to honor often by that church. Now, you said the pulpit was designed to glorify the word of God. Back in the book of Ezra, they had a pulpit of wood and they put it on a raised platform and they set the word of God on the pulpit of wood. And then Ezra and the elders of Israel stood upon the platform not to be honored of men, but to honor the word and to show the people that they were behind the word of God. Now, the plat- it's been changed a lot. Most of the time, people sit on the platform today to receive more glory of men. But the original intent was that the platform and those on the platform were giving all of their good name, all of their reputation, all of their honor to the word of God that was placed on the pulpit. The pulpit was never designed to glorify man. It was not designed as a place of honor for man. It was a place of honor for the word of God. But the preacher duly selected by the pulpit committee now assumes his role as pastor and steps up on the platform and he's now given that place and in many of the churches what has happened is the pastor instead of the word of God has been given the glory and the pastors and the faculty of the church have been given the place of honor instead of the word of God in many churches they don't even have a Bible on the stand anywhere some churches do away with Bibles altogether and pulpits all together and you just have a man get up there and walk around and give a talk a little lecture or he might have a little tablet which isn't a sin in and of itself but I want you to remember the purpose that these things were started the traditions that were passed down to us from our forefathers all the way back to the church of the Jews before Jesus Christ even came the pulpit of wood determined given and listen the wood represents the cross of Christ Jesus said when I be lifted up I will draw all men men unto me and he was lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness upon the pole and that bible is put up upon the pulpit of the wood the catholic church has a crucifix with a dead savior nailed to it the church of jesus christ has a wooden pulpit with the living inerrant inspired infallible word of god upon it while the risen resurrected lord and savior jesus christ sits at the right hand of the father Our Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and the written word of God is what rests upon the pulpit to give us the testimony of the cross of Christ and salvation through his name. Now this pastor, as duly elected, duly approved to be the pastor of his church, now stands up on the platform and is given honor of these men. At the business meeting, the pastor often is the chairman of the business meeting and acts in the equivalent of a president of an organization. And he's given honor. They let him um, lead the meeting. They let him open with prayer. They let him close with prayer. They let him make suggestions. Often the pastor will have some level of veto 
power. Um, and um, not to make light of it, often there's he has some measure of veto power, although there's often some deacons' wives in the church who maintain at least as much power as the pastor. But in any case, he has gained the glory of men. And in the meantime, because he's received glory of these men, he knows full well that if he deviates from the thought processes and the ideas and the philosophies that they agreed upon at the beginning of his tenure, that they will suffer a split or he will be removed from pastorate. Now, Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest preachers that America ever saw. And he was a Presbyterian. They do things different than we do things where I'm at. But nevertheless, he loved the Lord and he loved the Word of God. And God gives a lot of latitude in the Word of God for how churches organize their politics called church polity. But in any case, Jonathan Edwards, after the Great Awakening, realized that there had been a great slip. His, I believe it was his father-in-law, Solomon Stoddard, had been preaching that communion should be given to anybody who thinks that they want to be saved because it might make them feel more like they're closer to God and help them get to God. Kind of a seeker-friendly movement in the early 1700s. In fact, going back to the late 1600s. And so he was saying if they want to take communion, just give it to everybody. But as Jonathan Edwards studied the Bible, he realized the importance of communion and the fact that the communion as an ordinance of the church should be and must be restricted to the saved. It cannot be justly administered to a lost person because communion has absolutely no saving power. That bread and that wine has no ability to convert a soul or to make anybody more pleasing to God in any way. It is a symbol, something to be done in remembrance of me if you study it out in the Bible. And Jonathan Edwards began to implement a change. And he began to interview his church members and ask them if they were born again, if they were saved. And ask them what evidence they had. Now you're really getting touchy. It's one thing to ask somebody if they're saved. It's another thing to ask them to produce biblical evidence for their salvation. That's where people start to get really touchy with you. But this Jonathan Edwards proceeded to do. And as he asked them these questions and asked them of evidence, he found that a great number of his congregation who were communicants, who were permitted to take communion, had no biblical evidence of salvation. And he would confront them with it and then tell them that they must seek the Lord until he be found of them, give them scriptures, share with them the gospel, show them the way to Christ, and send them home to seek the Lord until they could produce biblical evidence of their salvation, at which point he assured them he would welcome them back to the communion table. Well, this went on and caused a great deal of unrest in the congregation until he reached the daughter of one of the wealthiest members of the church who lived like an infidel but professed Christ. And he was known to be very short on Christian virtues, and yet he was a communicant himself and he was on the list and he was going to be examined eventually and he knew it. And his daughter came before um, the preacher to discuss her salvation with the preacher there and he talked to her and she had no biblical evidence of salvation though she wanted to 
to be saved, there was something in her heart. She was, there were things she was unclear on. There were doubts that she had. And instead of doing the modern church, the modern evangelical church two-step or move, where you say, oh, you're not sure you're saved, repeat this little prayer, and then you rubber stamp them and send them down the road and tell them never to doubt their salvation, Jonathan Edwards instructed her in the gospel, told her to believe Christ and to come back when she had evidence that she, that she had received salvation from Christ which is biblical, by the way. And when he did that, her daddy went postal, so to speak, to use an expression here. That means he got angry. He became incensed. He became infuriated. And the man that had led Northampton, Massachusetts into revival and had been used mightily of God throughout all of the Great Awakening was summarily, that means quickly and shortly thereafter, put to silence by the church. He was removed from the office. They would not listen to him. He begged his church to gather and listen to him to preach on the subject of communion and bring the scriptures about salvation and he warned them that many of them were lost and that they were undone and far from Christ and that they needed to repent and turn to Christ and they would not hear and they would not even give him a hearing and they removed him from his pastorate. Now Jonathan Edwards was a man of careful study and a long life of hard labor in the word of God and in prayer. He labored in the doct- in the in doctrine and in in the word and in prayer. And Jonathan Edwards would often spend 14 hours a day, many times six days a week, in the study of the word of God. And in the writings and in the working that he did, he wrote many works and other things that he did and corresponded with other ministers. And he would be often 14 hours a day in that employ. And he did not have a trade. He did not have a fallback. He didn't have any other way to make money. And so late in his, later in his life, I can't remember his age at this point. I want to say he was in his 40s, but I cannot remember. So you have to check it out. He found himself unemployed, without a salary, without a home, without an income, and with a family to feed. And in those days, you didn't just up and change vocations. It was a lot harder to change vocations than it was now. It wasn't as free as it is now. He was a minister, and he was expected to remain a minister. And in a short while, the church was pressing him um, to get out of the house that he lived in for all those years of labor. And pretty soon, he found a way to get um, to take a job teaching Native American Indians on the frontier. And he removed to a frontier post where he had very little of the comforts that we would scarcely call comforts in our modern day of living. But he had very few of the comforts that he had once enjoyed. He had a much rougher fare, which means rougher food to eat. He had a much harder time. He did not have any of the things that he was accustomed to. And this very studied and very learned man was now reduced to teaching the alphabet to Native American children. And he got the privilege of being allowed to preach in the local church to a bunch of people that most of them did not know how to read, did not know how to write, and they did not have a very big vocabulary at all. And he was reduced to a very humble position. Now, God used that in his life, and that's, I'm not saying that to say God was done with him. That was far from the case. 
I believe God had a work for him to do amongst the Native Americans. You see, whenever the the wealthy reject you, God often sends you to the poor. Look at how the king sent to the highways and the byways and said, compel them to come in whenever all his rich friends refused to come to the wedding supper. But in any case, what I am saying is, Jonathan Edwards' glory was stripped from him. Now, he had glory in heaven, don't doubt that. Jonathan Edwards had great glory in heaven for his labors and for his faithfulness to the word of God, but it cost him. It cost him. Do you hear me today? And it's going to cost you. If you decide, I am going to follow Jesus. I am going to be faithful to the gospel. Like Paul said here in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. And there he says in verse 6, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome to you as the apostles of Christ. Now, if he, listen to me, it sounds all good to say of men, we sought no glory. But the fact is, if you look at the apostle Paul's life, if you look at the example we just gave from the life of Jonathan Edwards, it cost them. If you will not seek glory from men, it will cost you glorious positions. It will cost you glory and honor. It will cost you financially. It will cost you praise. It will cost you applause. It will cost you a hearing in many places. There will be places that you'll never preach, especially in our day and age where people heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and will not endure sound doctrine. If you are going to stick with the Bible, it is going to cost you. It's going to cost you on every level. But that is the faithful thing to do, and it is the, it is the example that Paul the Apostle set forth. By the way, what did it cost Paul right there in the Thessalonican town and in the village, in the area there, whenever he would not seek to please men, whenever he wouldn't sugarcoat his message, whenever he wouldn't compromise and back down and give those Jews a little wiggle room that were blaspheming, but instead he held forth the gospel in truth and purity? What did it cost him? They ran him out of Thessalonica in three weeks. He got to Berea and started a promising work. He found some people that would listen to the gospel and go read their Bibles. How You know, there's a lot of preachers out there that would give their right arm and their right leg to have ten people in their church that would just go home and read their own Bible. Just go home and read their own Bible and study it out for themselves and hold the preacher accountable to the word of God instead of their whims. There's a bunch of preachers out there that give their right arm and their right leg for 10 people in their congregation who have the spirit of the Bereans. It's a rare thing to find people who care about God and care about his word and want God to be true if it makes every man a liar. And he found a promising place. But those old Jews from Thessalonica came up and stirred up trouble at Berea and ran him out of Berea. It not only cost him at Thessalonica, it cost him at Berea. And somebody might have said to Paul, Hey, Paul, if you would have just lightened up just a little bit, if you would have held back just a little bit, if you would have compromised just a little bit, if you would have just given them a little bit of honor and respect, you know, those guys, they did have the oracles of God. You know, they are the children of Israel. They are a special people, and they are. If you would have just given them a little extra respect and showed them some honor, they probably wouldn't have reacted quite so so harshly and you wouldn't have gotten run out so quick and you wouldn't have had gotten run out of Berea and you wouldn't be stuck in Athens writing this letter to Thessalonica but then Paul could say to those people yeah and I wouldn't be saying this 
either. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, beloved, your election of God for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes." And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. Paul's success in this church born in trouble was due to the fact that they spake faithfully as they had been committed to trust of the gospel of God by Jesus Christ. They did not back down. They did not compromise. They came in power and in much assurance and in the Holy Ghost and they preached the word of God and souls were saved and a church was born in the face of trouble. You see, all this dodging of trouble has resulted in a dodging of the glory of God. There is no greater glory of God that can rest upon a church than to have the power of Almighty God present in the services and in the meetings of the church, in the assembly of the church, in the prayer gatherings of the church, to have prayers being answered in power, not just for Johnny's corns on his toes and not just for his bunions, but also for the saved to be, for the lost to be saved, for lives to be changed, for major prayers to be answered in a powerful way that God gets the glory is glory and it's glory on the church but it's a glory only God can and will bestow and God is God alone and he says my glory will I share with no man so you've got a choice you've got to make here's the ultimatum you have got to choose do you want glory from God or do you want glory from man do you hear me today This is your choice. Now, you will have this choice more than once in your life. You will have it over and over and over again. Do you want glory from God or do you want glory from man? If you choose God, then right around the corner comes another man to offer you glory for a small price. Just a small price. Just a small compromise. Just a small deviation. And you can have more glory. I sat in the room of a man that claimed to be an evangelist and a missionary and a great soul winner and a Bible translator. He said he was all those things. And he was taken up for these other Bible versions. And I, and I took him to Philippians 2, and I think it's verse 7, where it says that Jesus Christ was in the form, he says, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And there I took him and I said, and I told him the NIV here says it different. Why don't you look at what it says? And he looked at it. He wouldn't hardly look at it. He turned his face away, turned his face away, turned his face away. I said, what does it say? What does it say? What does it say? He wouldn't read it. He said, I can see where, how you can get the doctrine that I believe that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God out of that verse. I said, don't tell me what you see it might be able to be made to say. Tell me what it actually says. He wouldn't do it. Finally, I quoted it to him verse verbatim the NIV says that Jesus Christ thought not to be equal with God direct flagrant blasphemy 
and I looked at him and I told him what it said and he then he had to look and he finally looked to make sure that I wasn't lying on the old precious NIV and when he looked at it and he shuddered and he said yeah yeah it says that and I and I, t- I looked at him and I said that is blasphemy and he hung his head and the words came out of his mouth yes that's blasphemy and then almost as quick as he got done saying that he lifted up his head and he looked at me with beseeching and pleading eyes and he said but if we what if you switch to king james only you'll lose too many people seeking glory of men and he will never have the glory of god he will never have the glory of god all his work all his work will be burned that he does for the glory of men now let's go to Proverbs quickly. Proverbs 18.5. Let's look at some of this idea of respect of persons. Um, Proverbs 18 and verse 5. It is not good to accept the person of the wicked. To overthrow the righteous in judgment. Here comes two families in your church. One of the families has a young lady. One of the families has a young boy. The young boy is the deacon's son. The young lady is just one of the poor families that's only been there a year. And the poor family says the deacon's son has been uh, mishandling our daughter. And he's been doing inappropriate things to our daughter. And the preacher says, oh, you shouldn't be talking bad about the deacon. And the deacon says, why are you lying on my boy? And they don't even look into the matter. And they don't judge righteous judgment. And they run off the righteous. And they accept the wicked. And they allow it to go on. And it happens again and again and again. And they just keep on running off the righteous and protecting the wicked. And their church falls into complete immorality. happens all the time. It is not good to accept the person of the wicked to overthrow the righteous in judgment. 28.22, Proverbs 28.22. Go quickly. He that hasteth to be rich. This is a different verse that I was looking for. He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. That would fit with yesterday's text that we were looking at. Let's go to 29.25. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. If you're afraid of losing your friends, afraid of ostracization, afraid of being put on the outside of your group, afraid of losing your pulpit, losing your church, you are already in a snare. The fear of man bringeth a snare. Proverbs fifteen twenty one, And that looks like that's the wrong one. Says some, the verse I was looking for, he that despiseth his neighbor erreth, or something like that. I'd have to look it up later. 19.4, I apologize for that. Um, 19.4, wealth maketh many friends, but the poor is separated from his neighbor. A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Many will listen to me. This is the preacher that stands up and changes and alters and edits the word of God to seek glory of man and gain wealth. He's afraid of being poor, afraid of being separated from his neighbor, and he's a false witness. He's lying about God. He's using lying Bibles. He'll he'll use that NIV and let his people use it without saying a word, even though it lies about Jesus Christ. Look at John 7. I think it is verse 8 where the Bible says in the ESV in the NIV and in so many other versions that Jesus told his brothers I will not go up to this feast and then in the next verse went up to the feast and they make Jesus Christ the sinless son of God a liar and they by changing and removing the word yet 
where in the King James Bible, Jesus said, I go not up yet to this feast. They take out the yet, one little word, and they make Jesus Christ a liar. And then these preachers stand up in their pulpits and they read that false word of God. They read that lie to their people. And a lot of times don't even see it, don't even recognize it. But the Bible says a false witness shall not be unpunished. You're not going to get away with it with God. And he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Every time you stand up and preach out of a false Bible and read a lie that they put in there about Jesus, you have lied about Jesus. And you're not going to escape. You are not going to go unpunished. You are seeking glory of men and it is going to cost you. You are in a snare. Look at verse 6. Many will entreat the favor of the prince. Everybody wants the prince to say how much he likes them. And every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. In contrast, verse 7, all the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursueth them with words, yet they are wanting to him. So the preacher, like Jonathan Edwards, kicked out of his church, no longer has an income, no longer has a home, gets a job teaching Native Americans on the frontier how to read and write and preaching the gospel to them, which God certainly honored and will honor him for, but man was not impressed man was not impressed his people the people he'd called friends for years and years and years were wanting to him he pursued them with words yet they are wanting to him he still because of his great influence had some many friends uh, many friends and guess what happened to old jonathan edwards He was out there on the mission field, now in the mission field, and it seemed like his life was wasted. All his friends kept coming to him. Jonathan, you have a great education. You are one of the most learned theologians of our day. We need you on the front lines of theological battle. We need you to back down the the liars and and the critics and the new age reasoners of our day, these textual critics that are coming in and correcting the Bible because they were. And he said, we need you up here. We need you doing battle against universalism. We need you doing battle against this age of reasoning and higher criticism of the word of God. We're going to start a new college. And Jonathan, we want you to come and be the president. And Jonathan never did get peace about it. Oh, Jonathan Edwards, he never did get peace about it. Finally, as they, as they came and they came and they came and they came and they requested and they requested and they sent him many letters asking him to take over. I believe it was Princeton as a startup because if I remember right, Yale had gone over to higher criticism to a degree and to a bunch of false doctrine and been corrupted already. And so they said, come on, we must start Princeton. It's just going to be a little school at the first, but we're going to start it out right, and we want you to be the president. And here, here they were offering him glory of men. Old Jonathan Edwards, he, it was hard to pass up. His family was suffering. They were used to much greater living standards. They were used to a bigger house. They were used to having learned friends. They were used to um, having better things to eat. They were used to having nicer clothes. Life was rough on the frontier. But he didn't have peace about it. Say, so how do you know he didn't have peace about it? Um, he didn't say he didn't have peace about it. I have not read anything. I'm no expert on him, but what I have read... 
he didn't have peace about it. I'll tell you how he didn't have peace about it. He finally asked a bunch of his friends to form a presbytery and decide the matter for him. When you're following God, you don't need a bunch of friends to tell you what to do. You just need God. And Jonathan Edwards struggled with it. He battled with it. He'd been guilt-tripped. You're not taking care of your family right. You need to, you need to come and do this and take care of your family better. You're, not, you're wasting your life back here in the backwoods. By the way, back there in the backwoods, Jonathan Edwards wrote more, more of the books that he'd had laid on his heart that he desired to write in the backwoods than he had written before by far. His writing ministry had multiplied because he didn't, wasn't using nearly as much time on, the other, on his other energies of taking care of the church at Northampton. So here they came to him and they said, Jonathan Edwards, come to Princeton. He formed a presbytery of other preachers and friends and professors and had them all gather and pray about it and seek God's face. And guess what the answer was that came back from him? They were already telling him to do it anyway. They unanimously voted that Jonathan that it was the will of God for Jonathan Edwards to go to Princeton. So Jonathan Edwards packed up his family. He packed up his belongings. He left the little bitty church in the frontier. He left the Native Americans who he had been laboring amongst, and he went to the big city on the East Coast to start the College of Princeton. And he was there, if I remember right, less than one year, and he died. Well, he was there. They had an outbreak of smallpox in the area. And the college board at Princeton told Jonathan Edwards, we think that you should get the new smallpox vaccine because you're in danger of smallpox and we can't risk you. We need you. Glory of men. Jonathan Edwards said, okay, you guys think I need it? I'll take it. He took the shot, contracted smallpox from the vaccination, and he died. Read it. It's history. And in less than one year, year, his wasted life in the wilderness became a wasted life in the big city because he sought glory of men for whatever good motives he possibly had. Now, God preserved his good work, and God preserved what he did, and I thank God for all the good that he did. But let this serve as a warning to you. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Do not seek glory of men. Now, we talked about in Thessalonians. We got, let's go back to Thessalonians. We talked about there the nor of you sought we glory. Let's look at nor of others there, which um, we can apply Jonathan Edwards' story back to that. Um, in fact, Jonathan Edwards illustrates both of those aspects. First, his own church. If he had sought glory of his own church, he would have stayed in Northampton, but his ministry would have lost all of its effectiveness with God. He would have sought glory of men. But then the others came to Jonathan Edwards, and they allured him with thoughts of glory, and he followed the others. So he did not seek it of, of you, but he did, but the others got him. And this is the, these are the two areas that every minister of God is going to have to fight. Glory of you, glory of others. If your church isn't the one that's going to kick you out, then the others are the one that are, one, ones that are going to get you. In the Methodist denominations, they, the higher-ups decide what preacher goes where. Now, a local church has some 
saying it as I understand. They can send in requests. They can give their preferences, pass them on up. They can tell about their likes and their dislikes, and they can say, no way, Jose, we don't like this guy. Get us somebody new. Um, and they, they have some appeal there. But ultimately, the decision, as I understand it, rests with the higher-ups. There are other groups. The Presbyterians have a presbytery. And the churches then have to work through that presbytery in order to get a pastor. And in many different groups, the pastors are assigned, and some more, some less, um, with ab- sometimes with no say from the congregation. And then you're seeking glory of others. You'll be tempted to seek glory of the people in your church, and you'll be tempted to seek glory of those outside your church. Excuse me. James chapter 2, James chapter 2 deals with this respect of persons. Before we go there, um, let's stay in our text just a little bit longer. He says, Nor of men sought me glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. So this idea of being burdensome means receiving our living from you, which he teaches in Corinthians is a biblical truth, that the laborer is worthy of his hire and that the congregation should support the minister, that the those that are ministered to should support the ministry of the one ministering to them. But he said, we were not burdensome to you. We sought not your glory. We not we sought no good of you. And he contrasts that in verse 7, but we're gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Cherisheth her children. So they sought not glory as the apostles of Christ. We might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Now, what is he saying there? We've got to touch this just a second. This deserves at least a mention, if not a whole message in and of itself. We don't have time for another message. Who wrote this letter? Paul, Silvanus, Timotheus, unto the church of Thessalonians. And here he says, we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. And here he claims the position of the group of his evangelistic band as the apostles of Christ. Now, this is not a this is not something that's going to win you glory or favor with a lot of the groups that I'm that I like and a lot of my friends are part of. Um, would probably throw me out real quick for this one, but I'm not going to seek glory of them. I'm just going to tell you the truth. We're going to move on. Acts there, I believe it's 13. You can turn there. I had it written down. Acts 14, 14 says, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. Now the Bible is very clear that there are 12 apostles of the lamb and only 12 apostles of the lamb. And these 12 apostles of the lambs, lamb are the ones that have the authority to give us the scriptures. But the other guys that went out and were sent out by the church to do the evangelistic mission work of starting churches throughout the land by preaching the gospel and building up these churches and ordaining elders in every city were called apostles in your Bible, like it or lump it. Now, they were not the apostles in the same sense as the apostles of the Lamb, um, but they were still apostles. So he says, we could have been burdensome to you as the apostles of the Lamb. But we were not. He says, we were gentle among you as a nurse cherisheth her children. Cherisheth. Boy, I can't say that word right today. 
Go over to James. Go over to James. Nowadays, a lot of people run around and they want to claim to be an apostle, but I think you should check out what the, what the qualifications of an apostle are. An apostle, the lamb, had to live with Christ, walk with Christ, be with Christ from the time of his baptism with John all the way through to the end of his ministry, his resurrection and ascension. Paul said he got cut in as an apostle born out of due time, specifically. Uh, the other apostles that it mentions that he talks about are apostles in the fact that they are sent to preach the word of God, that the apostles of the Lamb were commissioned to give. The apostles of the Lamb gave us the word of God, and the apostles carry forward the work of the apostles under the authority of those apostles. And you can see the proofs and the evidences of an apostle in the, book of, in the books of Corinthians when Paul talks about his privations, his hungers, his shipwreck. Um, his how people hated him, how he sought not glory of men, all those kinds of things, how he labored working with his own hands. You want to tell me you're an apostle? You better start producing some evidence, some biblical evidence of your apostleship. Now, let's move on from there. James 2. James 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with the respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised? to them that love him but ye have despised the poor do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself ye do well but if ye have respect to persons ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors did you hear what the word of God said if you have respect of persons ye commit sin whenever you stand up and refuse refuse to preach the gospel for what it says and you alter it and you edit it and you kowtow to your big tall hat crowd in order to get their approval and their glory you are sinning against almighty god and he says there for he for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point he is guilty of all for he that said do not commit adultery said also do not kill now if thou commit no adultery yet if thou kill thou art become a transgressor of the law so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy and mercy rejoiceth against judgment so here he brings in the law of liberty that demands that we judge righteous judgment, that we show mercy, that we speak truth, that we love righteousness, and that we preach the word of God even as it has been committed unto us, plus nothing, minus nothing. Go back to our text um, in First Thessalonians. He says, Our exhortation was not of deceit, in verse 3 of chapter 2, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak... Um even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. This is what we studied yesterday and the day before. The flattering words that um, cover up the truth, that build up a person with religious ideas of greatness and give glory to man in that sense. 
false praise, manipulating false praise, and then the cloak of covetousness, um, luring people, saying the right words, but with the false motives. And he says, nor of God sought we, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. He's saying we had the authority, we could have sought glory, we could have told you, hey, we're apostles over here, you better take care of us. But we wouldn't do it. We were like a nurse that cherisheth, cherisheth, cannot say that word today, cherisheth her little children. We could have been burdensome. We could have charged for our services. We could have made you um, all stand while we sat. We could have done all kinds of things in the name of being an apostle, but we did not. He says, instead, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. All right, so here the Jews in the law would exclude the Gentiles. The Gentiles are now called by God under the law of liberty to go to all the world and to preach the gospel to all men. Look at a couple verses real quick. Revelation twenty two seventeen. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will. Go to Romans 10. Revelation again. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will is pretty broad. Um, Romans ten eleven for the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's a second whosoever. And verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he goes on, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Preachers, your job is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe, to every tongue, not to seek glory of men, but to preach the truth of Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing, as you have been put in trust of the gospel of God. That's your job. Stick to it. Stick to the gospel. Don't seek glory of men. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to honor you. Help us to look to you for approval and not for man. If all the world hates us and all the world turns from us, help us to stand and, Lord, preach the truth, no matter how unpopular it is, no matter how many people disassociate themselves from us. Father, help us to preach the truth and stand on your word and never back down. Protect us from the danger of the glory of men. And help us, Lord, to seek glory from you alone and to give glory to you alone. In Jesus Christ's name and for his sake, amen.